are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. David Guzik here, and I'm glad that you could join me today. Uh, I'm very pleased that we can be here for another Thursday afternoon, YouTube Live. I'm using a completely new camera setup and uh, all of that. So I would appreciate a little bit of feedback in the side chat, just so that I know that the audio and the video are coming through well. Uh, if it is, just let me know briefly. I don't need to know from everybody, but just from a few people, the audio and video are coming through loud and clear uh, because, of course, that's what it's all about. Just sort of upgrading a few of our uh, technical things here. And again, glad you could join me for this Thursday afternoon. Now, uh, I want to get into a question that comes from Karen. I see that Karen is already in the side chat. She messaged me on social media and asked me to deal with this question. And Karen's question gives me a opportunity to deal with an issue that I think is important to deal with. And it's under the idea of just what we're talking about. Are charismatics going to hell? That's really the question. So um, here's the question, and let me get at it. First of all, Karen asked this question. I'll just read it to you. I've edited the question slightly just to make it a little clearer for those who read, but here we go. Karen writes this. Hi, Pastor. I've been going to a cessationist church. Now, let me pause right there. If you don't know what a cessationist church is, I'll deal with that in just a minute. But she says, hi, pastor. I've been going to a cessationist church. Well, almost two months ago, I had an experience where I spoke in another tongue. It just happened out of the blue. When I told my pastor this, his first response was that it was demonic. Well, two months later, I was prompted to leave the church because I was questioned. Why am I still here if I don't believe what the pastor teaches? The pastor is going to address the church body about why I left and ask them to pray for me. He told me that he says the Lord might one day say to me, depart from me for I never knew you. And the pastor questions my salvation. My heart is broken and I am scared. Can I lose my salvation for believing in the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit for today? Well, what a question. And Karen, I'm happy to deal with your question today. I hope this is helpful for you. I want to say at the beginning, I am so sorry to hear of your experience. Now, I hope that it is a rare experience, but surely you can't be the only one whose salvation is questioned or even denied because of this disagreement about the work and the gifts of the Holy Spirit among Christians. So Karen, let me say, first of all, I'm delighted to hear about your experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm delighted to hear about your experience of receiving the gift of tongues. I'm very sorry to hear about the reaction from your church at least as you have stated it to me. Now, in the broader Christian world, there are at least two groups that understand the work and the gifts of the Holy Spirit in different ways. One group is commonly called cessationists because they believe that the more 
evidently miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit are no longer given by the Holy Spirit to the church today. Some cessationists say that these gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased. That's why they're called cessationists. They believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, or these gifts of the Holy Spirit, ceased with the death of the New Testament apostles. And other cessationists say that they ceased when the New Testament was completed. Those two positions are basically saying the same. Now, the other group that see the work of the Holy Spirit in a different way is commonly called charismatics or Pentecostals. Sometimes you could call them continuationists. They believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as listed in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and a few other places as well, but that those gifts of the Spirit are still given by the Holy Spirit to his people today as the Spirit wills. Again, that's a very important point. It is never up to human ambition or desire. It's never a matter of a person saying, oh, I'd like to do miracles, so now I'm going to do them. No, the valid gift has to be given by the Holy Spirit. Now, in general, these groups, and I'm talking about the charismatics on one side, the continuationists on the other side, or excuse me, the continuationists on one side, the cessationists on the other side. In general, these groups also have a disagreement about something that the scriptures call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm speaking in very general terms right now, but most, not all, but most charismatics or Pentecostals, again, you could call them continuationists, they believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is often an experience for the believer after they are already saved. I'm pretty sure that all cessationists believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that is given to all believers at their conversion when they are born again. So, you have these disagreements about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, about uh, whether or not all the spiritual gifts continue to today. Now, here's what it seems like happened with Karen. I I must first point out that whenever someone tells me about a bad experience that they had at a church, All I can do is respond to the matter as they explain it to me. Look, I know very well that it's possible that someone intentionally or unintentionally can misrepresent a situation. I I do understand. However, what seems to have happened with Karen is that she had an experience with the Holy Spirit. She was baptized with the Holy Spirit, and then she spontaneously began to speak in prayer and praises to God in a language that she did not know. This is something that the Bible calls the gift of tongues or languages. And in response to that, her pastor put her out of the church or threatened to and openly questioned her salvation. Brothers and sisters, this is wrong on many levels. If And it's a big if. And Karen, I know you're tuning in right now, so please don't take this personally. But if Karen was causing trouble in the church because of her experience with the Holy Spirit, and because of her experience in speaking in tongues, if she's causing trouble with that, 
uh, openly questioning the pastor's teaching, trying to rally people around. Okay, if that's the case, then perhaps, perhaps it might be best to ask her to attend another church. But if she wasn't causing trouble, I think it's way out of bounds for the pastor to ask her to leave the church, number one. But number two, in my mind, the far greater offense is calling her salvation into question. Now, as I said, I hope that this kind of thing is rare among our cessationist brethren. But whether it is common or rare, it should never happen. We should not declare other people to be outside the kingdom because they uh, disagree with us on such an issue. Now, now to be fair, there are sometimes charismatics or Pentecostals who deny that someone is saved if they don't have a particular experience with the Holy Spirit. And let me say, when they do that, they are also wrong. We should not be excluding people from the kingdom on such a basis. Now, I believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit for today. And if there are any gifts that are not given today, I would say that they, come, that they do not come from the lists that are given to us in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. The gifts that are not given today, if there are any, would be these. First of all, the gift, or better, the office of apostle equal to the apostles of the New Testament. Those apostles in New Testament times had God-given authority to speak with authority to the entire church and the gift of hearing God perfect. So this is what I mean. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 tells us that God has established the, the church on the foundation of Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, but on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that foundational work of apostles and prophets described in Ephesians 2.20 is no longer needed in the church, and it's no longer given. There is nobody to whom God today speaks and has a perfect understanding and the authority to speak to the entire church. Now, in regard to my cessationist brethren, I have great respect for them, especially when it comes to two points. The first point is this. Cessationists often do an excellent job of exposing and pointing out the foolishness that is often present in the charismatic or Pentecostal world. Now, look, foolishness is not only found among charismatics and Pentecostals, but they are plenty of extreme crazy fools who claim that their work is the work of the Holy Spirit when it is not. It, it is not wrong. It is not unfair for our cessationist brethren to point that out. That's the first point where I would say, look, I respect you, my cessationist brethren. The second point where I would say I respect my cessationist brethren is this. They are zealous to protect the integrity of the Bible. That is a good thing. And often one of their central arguments against the continuationist position is that they believe that if God were to speak to anyone today through speaking to an individual, through a prophetic word, 
through a dream or a vision, through the gift of tongues. They believe that if God were to speak to anyone today, it would mean that we don't need our Bibles anymore and that we should be more interested in spontaneous words from God than in what he has written. Let me tell you, I believe that that is an absolutely unnecessary conclusion. With all my heart, I believe in the sufficiency, the integrity, and the central place of the scriptures. I do not believe for a moment that this contradicts the truth that God may speak to someone today. Now, the word of God, the Bible, is perfect, and it is universal. If God speaks to someone today, it is not perfect, and it is not universal. It is crazy to think that someone that God might speak to, some, to that something that God might speak to someone today could replace the Bible, the Word of God. Now, let me tell you something. And please hear me out on this. When God speaks today, it is not perfect. Not because God is less than perfect. Forbid the thought. God can never be less than perfect. No. When God speaks today, it's not that God is less than perfect, but it's because we are less than perfect. And when God inspired the authors of the Bible, Old and New Testament, he perfectly guided them. And if that is thought of as a gift, then we can say that gift isn't given today. Again, I want to stress. The imperfection is never on God's part, but on ours. So even if you believe that God has spoken to you, be humble about it. Don't put too much confidence in your ability to hear perfectly from God. Also, when God speaks today, if he were to speak through a prophecy, through um, some praise or prayer in the gift of tongues, through a dream or a vision, it is not for the church universal as it is in the Bible. Listen, this is for all God's people through all generations. No spontaneous word from God is like that today. It is for a personal or perhaps a local, I mean, sort of congregational kind of application. Now, for these reasons and more, I would never believe that a word from God for today would be on the same level as the Bible. In fact, we are to judge whatever is claimed to be spoken by God by the Bible, by what we know to be spoken by God. Now, one more thing. If every word spoken by God is on the level of Scripture, then what we have in our Bibles is incomplete. Why do I say that? Because we know that in the days of the New Testament, there were true, valid prophets operating, and we don't have their recorded words. I'll just give you two brief examples. We know that Philip's daughters prophesied. That's in Acts chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. But we don't have the book of the prophecies of Philip's daughters. Now, how could that be? Again, it's because what Philip's daughters spoke 
as prophetesses, if you want to give them that title, it was not, and it could never be equal to this, God's perfect universal revelation to his people and to mankind. You see, there's a difference. We know that prophets spoke among the congregation in Corinth. You can find that in 1 Corinthians 12 and in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. But we don't have their words recorded in the Bible. Apparently, there's a difference between what Philip's daughters spoke, what the true prophets in the Corinthian congregation spoke, and the word of God. So, we can see a clear difference between God's inspired, eternal word and what God may say to an individual or a congregation by a work of the Holy Spirit today. So, Karen, let me conclude with this. Praise God for your experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and your experience of speaking in tongues. I am sorry that you've gone through this with your church, but based on what you wrote to me, you have no reason at all to fear for your salvation. I hope that's a help to you. And I ask my cessationist brothers and sisters to stop declaring their continuationist brothers and sisters out of the kingdom. And by the way, I'll add again, if there are continuationist brothers and sisters, charismatics or Pentecostals, who are excluding other people from the kingdom because they didn't have a particular experience with the Holy Spirit, well, you stop that as well. But we've got to get beyond this. This is not right. It's an unright, it's an unjust way for us to approach our brothers and sisters and the truth of God. All right, having gone on for quite a while about that, let's continue on right now. I shall take a look at the side chat and deal with these questions here that have come in on the side chat. So thanks. Susie says, um, first, let me get to uh, some of Karen's responses, if I could see. Um, uh, she wants to know, did you, she's asking if she lost the gift of tongues since only have one. No, Karen. And, and I would simply warn you this. Please don't try to manufacture the gift of tongues. You don't need to try to manufacture anything. You just keep seeking God. You keep walking in the Holy Spirit. And if God were to give you such a gift, you just receive it. And I'm very glad to hear, Karen, that you didn't take it personally from what the church, and I'm glad to hear that that is a mature Christian approach to not take such things personally. All right, let me continue on here. Again, going up to our uh, side chat. Susie says, what's exactly insulting the spirit of grace according to Romans chapter, Hebrews, I should say, Chapter 10, verse 29. Does this verse have any relationship with Galatians 5, 4, falling from grace? Well, let me turn to that. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, where it says, oh, Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. Um, Susie, I would say this, that what is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 10 is a clear rejection of Jesus Christ, in particular, 
the work that Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. It's rejecting that. In other words, just look at what he describes here. Who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, has insulted and rejected Jesus. Uh, number two, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing. They think little of the blood of Jesus and the new covenant. And then finally, insulted the spirit of grace. It is to reject Jesus and reject what he did for us on the cross. I believe that the aspect here in Hebrews 10.29 is the aspect of rejecting or insulting the Holy Spirit and what he has to say to us in and through that. That's what's going on here in Hebrews chapter 10. I would say that it's not exactly what is spoken of in Galatians 5, for falling from grace, but it's certainly connected to it. Listen, I find it fascinating that Paul and the New Testament speak to us very strongly about the importance of continuing on in the grace of God. And that's what we need to do. Obviously, this person described in Hebrews chapter 10 has not continued on in the grace of God. But most specifically, insulting the spirit of grace, I think, is insulting the Holy Spirit who speaks to us God's gracious word about who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. Basically, you could say the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Susie, that's a very interesting connection that you make there. Uh, thank you for that. Um, let me move on. Uh, it says, looks good. Okay, everybody is saying. Um, AR asks a question, what is transformation of E? Um, AR, I got to say, you'd have to give me more of an explanation of your question because I don't immediately connect with what that means, the transformation of E. Thank you, though. Um, Abraham says that he gets a little bit of feedback on his audio. I wonder if that's the case with more than a few of you. Um, let me turn down the audio just to be safe. Um, Carmel says... Okay, we get buzzing in the background. Hmm. Let me see if there's anything I can do to correct the audio with that. Yeah, folks, I don't think I can do it right now at the moment, but I'll take it into consideration and perhaps do better with it later. Let me try with that. If that improves the audio, please. Uh, okay, uh, here is a question from Carmel. Um, how should we treat those who have fallen away? When a Christian friend fell away, her husband asked me to talk with her. She laughed at me and denied Jesus. I'm not sure that I understand Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Well, um, Carmel, that's a good question. Let, let me answer it just like this. When somebody falls away from the Christian faith, we need to treat them as an unbeliever. Now, what does that mean? Well, number one, one, it doesn't mean that we hate them. It doesn't mean that we refuse to associate with them. Um, instead, what it means is that the um, it means that we see instead that we should treat them with love and grace, but we should not pretend that they are Christians. 
I think that that's the big key there. We should not pretend that they are Christians. That is the very important part about it. So be loving and gracious to people, um, but don't pretend for a moment that they're Christians. Don't treat them as if they're Christians. Treat them as somebody who needs to come to faith. Now, um, people who are dangerous to the health of God's family, they're spreading false doctrines. They're trying to bring other people into false beliefs. Um, that is something that is a much more serious matter. And with those people, you may need to consciously disassociate yourself from them. But that is different from the idea of simply um, uh, treating people as unbelievers. So again, that, that's what I do. I just don't pretend that they're still believers if they've given you reason to believe that they're not. Okay, let me continue on here. Um, and Andrea, if you could ping back to me and let me know if the audio is any better after that adjustment, I'd appreciate it. Um, Ava says, I'm 15 and wanting to devote to Christ. So my question is, should we listen to Christian music only or when we can listen to secular music as well? Ava, first of all, you're 15. And I'm so happy that you are devoted to Jesus Christ and want to say, serve him. So let me present this question to you in a few ways. First of all, because you're 15, and I'm going to presume you're still in your parents' home, um, I think that it is important for you to uh, regard and obey what your parents would have you do. Um, so your parents, I think, have a large say in this. That's something that I think is very important for you to acknowledge, that your parents have a significant say along the way with what should happen in this. So that's the one thing. Um, if your parents have instructed you that you should not um, do this, that you should not listen to secular music, well, then I think you should respect that. Now, let's just say that it isn't a matter of your parents. Let's just say that they really haven't weighed in on the subject whatsoever. Then this is what I would recommend to you. First of all, understand this. Um, you won't be harmed by not listening to secular music. So I, I just want to make that clear. If you're going to err on any direction, you can err on the side of not listening, so to speak. However, you also want to avoid the error of what we would call legalism. And legalism simply means this. It means that uh, we make as a law of God something that God has not declared in the scriptures. So again, I, I just want to emphasize that you have the freedom to listen to certain, now I suppose there are certain secular songs that are so offensive, so against, you know, biblical morality that you should wipe those off the table. But then th there's a whole nother, you could say, arena of secular music um, that isn't, it's, it's morally neutral, so to speak. Regarding the morally neutral uh, music, I think that you do have the 
a permission before God to listen to it. But don't think that you're doing anything bad by denying yourself. There are certain things in the Christian life that God would grant to one believer and deny to another believer. And so it could be okay for another brother or sister in Christ to listen to, to secular music. Maybe God is speaking to your heart and saying, don't do it. I, I guess really that's what I would get at. Be aware of the fact that there's, um, uh, that there's different ways that the Holy Spirit may speak to an individual on this. Okay, uh, going on, um, Ray says, thanks for all the feedback on the audio in the video. Uh, I suppose we'll get to this, make it a little bit better as we go along the way. Um, again, first time using this setup. So uh, Ray says, uh, just thanking me for answering questions on Thursday. You're very welcome for this. Um, Dennis says, uh, Good afternoon, Pastor Guzik. Can you explain the book of Enoch and many other books were taken out of the Bible? Okay, Dennis, well, let me say this. First of all, these books were never taken out of the Bible. They were never in there to belong with. The, the book of Enoch, I'm looking over at my page. I've got it on a shelf, but it's in a place that I can't get to within arm's reach. Uh, I see it over there. Uh, the Apocrypha. Uh, the, the book of Enoch is an ancient Jewish writing that's not inspired by the Holy Spirit. No doubt there are some true things in it, especially because Jude, in his brief letter, quotes from the book of Enoch. So we understand that. But what we don't need to do is say that a book like that belongs or at one time was in the New Testament or the Old Testament, the Bible. No, these books were never considered part of these scriptures. I I'm not saying that you can't find some ancient Jewish person somewhere who said that it belonged. Of course you could. I'm just saying that the consensus of opinion says that these books do not belong in the New Testament or the Old Testament, I should say, in the Bible. So really, uh, they never long, and the book of Jude is simply an ancient Jewish writing, and there are parts of it that are true. D don't be afraid to read it. G go ahead and read it. Um, but you, um, you should not regard it as part of the scriptures. Uh, that's simply what I would say. Okay, let me continue on here. Um, Okay, Amoye says, Hello, Pastor David. I thank God for your life and what you're doing. I want to ask what the new faith generation means and modalism. I mean, new age word of faith movement. Well, um, Amoye, let, let me say this. First of all, um, the new age movement is a false religion. It's a mystical, false religion that is out there. Um, the New Age movement is not Christianity, and Christians need to be careful that they don't bring in New Age thinking into their Christian practice. Now, there may be some things that 
new age practitioners do that Christians also do. Let me explain. It could be said that new age practitioners pray. Uh, they pray to their higher power, whatever it is. And Christians pray. Now, whom new age practitioners pray to is not the same thing that believers pray to, not by any means. But nobody can say, well, Christians shouldn't pray because new agers have a form of prayer. Nobody should say Christians should not read the scriptures because new agers have a form of the scriptures that they read. But in general, Christians should avoid, I'd say in general, no, just simply said, Christians should not bring new age practices and thinking into their exercise of Christianity. Now, you also mentioned the word of faith movement. The word of faith movement is basically a segment of the charismatic and Pentecostal world. It, it does not define the entire charismatic and Pentecostal world, but it is a segment of the uh, charismatic and Pentecostal world that basically believes that we as believers have the power and the authority to create our reality by the words of faith that we speak. Um, we can create our reality uh, in regards to our wealth. We could be rich if we just spoke the right words of faith. And as far as the immediate healing of the believer, every believer can be immediately healed if they just speak the right words of faith. Um, those are unbiblical teachings. Um, I, I can't go into any great depth, but those things are not biblical teachings, and they do harm to the cause of Christianity. And then the third thing you mentioned, Amoye, is modalism. Modalism is a wrong teaching about God. It's even a heresy. Modalism denies the Trinity. It denies the idea that there is one God in three persons simultaneously. Modalism denies that there is is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Modalism says that God was the Father, then he became Jesus, now he's the Holy Spirit. That God just simply adopted different modes of being. Again, simply said, without going into a lengthy explanation, that is not what the Bible teaches. So uh, I hope I've given you just a basic explanation to you of those things. Um, going on here now, uh, Joe says, I'm on the other end. I believe the gifts and been blessed to experience them, but I'm leaving my church with a broken heart because too much emphasis on false prophetic men. Uh, Joe, and if that's Joey Hinosa, God bless you, brother. Um, Joey, I, I, you're, you're right to leave a church over that. I believe that the prophetic is true, but I believe that there's a lot of foolishness and a lot of dangerous foolishness in the church today regarding the prophetic. So it's important that you recognize that. And um, if that's what you need to do to lead a church, if it's at a place where it's like, it's better for me not to have a, there's another church that's more faithful uh, to God and his word, uh, then yes, you should pursue that.
Um, let's see. I'm just trying to make sure that I'm not missing any questions. Thank you for that one, Joey. Um, Abraham says, apostles equal Old Testament prophets, Wayne Grudem, the gift of prophecy. Well, I wouldn't say they equal, but I'd say there is a correlation between apostles and Old Testament prophets. Um, Karen, I'm grateful that this helped you. Um, Daniel says, what do you think about supposed Catholic miracles such as bodies not decomposing after death due to a holy life prior to the person's death? A recent example of this was Carlos uh, Acutis. Daniel, um, this is something that I have not researched in much detail, but, but I can tell you this. Okay, on the one hand, there's a lot of superstitious foolishness out there. And if things lead people to superstitious foolishness instead of um, directing them towards God and trusting in him, then that's something to question right there. But I also want to suggest something else. Daniel, even though I, I tend to be very skeptical of such things, very skeptical, because I know that through history, how often it is common for people to fake and feign miracles. Um, Daniel, I, I want to say this. At the same time, there are strange spiritual things that happen that I feel no need to explain. I don't have any burden to explain them. It's just, well, wow, that happened. I don't know. Let's see the fruit of it. Um, there are strange spiritual things that happen that we should not form our theology around those things. That's very important. And secondly, we should not um, uh, build doctrine around them, and we shouldn't just make too big of a deal about them. So I, I released myself from the burden a long time ago, a feeling that I had to have an explanation for every strange spiritual thing. Okay, let me continue on here. Um, Blessings to you, Joe, um, Charles. What is the correct interpretation of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2? Well, I'm happy to do it. Let me just read it. We can talk about it here for a few moments. Of course, I do have a verse-by-verse -verse commentary on the entire Bible. You can always look that up. But again, I'm very happy to deal with it here in the question and answer. It says, God who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now, um, Charles, let, let me deal with this. I'm wondering if you're asking this question connected to our lead question. Because these are verses that cessationists often bring up saying, God no more speaks to people because he spoke to people in the days of Jesus. Again, because it says, 
in verse 1, God has spoken in various times and ways. And now in verse 2, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed by heir of all things. Now, I want to say, I believe Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, with all my heart. Jesus Christ is the essence of God's revelation. He is the perfection of God's revelation. But what I don't find in here is a compelling argument that God no more speaks to individuals uh, today, because certainly God spoke to individuals after Jesus ascended to heaven. The ascension of Jesus to heaven did not end the revelation of God. The words spoken by Jesus while he was on this earth, both during his earthly ministry and in the 40 days that he appeared on earth after his resurrection, the words spoken by Jesus on this earth before his ascension do not comprise the entirety of God's authoritative revelation, nor his revelation to individuals such as we see through the daughters of Philip or the people practicing the gift of prophecy in the church of Corinth. So I, I just don't see here a compelling argument to say that after Jesus, there was no more revelation from God. Now, I would say this. After the New Testament was completed, there was no perfect universal revelation by God. Absolutely, positively. Um, but that's simply how it ends right there. So, you know what? Um, I got to say, uh, because of our technical challenge and stuff, I'm going to cut it a little bit shorter today. Um, so pleased that you could join us. And I do want to simply say that I will uh, continue to work on these technical things. And uh, next Thursday, I will not be with you for a live question and answer, but I certainly hope to be able to join you with a, uh, a, a pre-recorded question and answer for next Thursday. So I'll take note of all the questions that I wasn't able to get to. Thank you for everybody who's been able to join us on today's live uh, stream. It's been a blessing speaking with you. And uh, I'll connect you with the next time live or via a pre-recorded question and answer. Thank you so much for joining me today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.